Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, should Hamilton host the 2030 Commonwealth Games? Also, the City of Hamilton has filed an order to comply to obtain a shoring permit for the buildings of the condo project at the old Kresge site. And a report from Canadians for Clean Prosperity says the Ontario plan would actually cost taxpayers twice as much as the carbon tax plan the federal government's put out. Hmm. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. City Council meeting today in uh, just 25 minutes or so down at City Hall. One of the questions that they'll be dealing with is whether or not the city should make an official bid or commitment to a bid for the 2030 Commonwealth Games. Now, there's a very special significance to the 2030 Games that we'll get to in just a couple of seconds. City staff are actually bringing a recommendation of signing what they call a memorandum with the group uh, who is promoting the Games. One of those is P.J. Mercandy, the CEO of Carmen's Group. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on this. P.J., thanks for the time. I know it's a busy day for you guys. Uh, it's a busy day, but an exciting day, Bill. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about this. You and I had a conversation, I guess, weeks ago now, uh, when this idea was being floated. Uh, you've had some chances now to, to get together with your group to talk about a game plan. Um, have you ch- had a chance to talk to any of the individual councillors about this to s- just kind of gauge where their support may be? Uh, we have, and we've had uh, a lot of uh, very positive discussions with uh, City Hall staff with um, at the time, acting manager Zagarek and, and and a handful of his uh, his leadership team, and uh, and right now, Bill, what is before council is essentially a request for uh, for the working group, the Hamilton 100 community group, um, to you know sign and engage in a memorandum of understanding with the city uh, to essentially allow us the runway to prepare a business plan uh, around the 2030 games. And, uh, and from that point, you know, if council endorses this, uh, we would then report back to the city with a business plan uh, for the game so that that way they could see the, you know, the economic benefits, you know, the financial, you know, the financial positive benefit for the city uh, and, and all other information around the venues plan, etc. But we're essentially asking the city for permission to prepare a business plan. And, and they can then review that, you know, down, down the road in a few months. Um, but we're, you know, we're just asking them to give us that runway, to give us the green light to explore this. There has been a lot of positive uh, developments in the international community around the Hamilton uh, 100 and the, the idea of the Commonwealth Games coming back to Hamilton. So we certainly want to uh, explore that further and see, you know, what opportunity could emerge out of this. Let's let's talk about the logistics here because that's an important part of this. And I'm glad you you raised this idea about uh, the sentimentality. I guess uh, the the 2030 games would be the 100th anniversary of the Commonwealth Games, and and as I'm sure most people are aware now, the first ever Commonwealth Games, well, they were called the British Empire Games back then, was held right here in Hamilton, uh, which is Absolutely. why it would be, be so apropos to have it back here for the 100th anniversary. And at those games, Bill, it, it, you know, in addition to it being the first, uh, there were a lot of milestone uh, moments that occurred. It was the first time uh, in the history of international sport that an athlete's village was created. So the whole concept of the athlete's village that has you know, been, been broadcast around the world and has been a part of every major sports game, that started right here in Hamilton. Uh, the very first sports podium that ever 
uh, was uh, displayed and showcased at an international games was displayed and shown right here in Hamilton. You know, two years later uh, at the LA games, they, you know, they used the, uh, the podium concept and it's been a standard mm-hmm. uh, ever since then, you know, it was the first time the travel subsidy uh, was ever introduced at a game. So it's a pretty special history uh, that we have here. And, and, and we certainly think that it's history worth repeating. You know, we know that Hamilton has been down the road before, uh, with previous Commonwealth Games attempts, and we've certainly, as a city, you know, learned a lot through those experiences and have a great foundation uh, and, and a great you know, platform to, to jump off of. Uh, but I think that it's time now for Hamilton to, to secure its place as the home of the 100th anniversary Games, uh, and there has been a lot of you know, incredible um, you know, positive signs from the international community, and specifically, Bill, the Commonwealth Games Federation. Uh, you know, when they caught winds and, and got word from our, you know, back, our presentation back in, uh, in late March about the, the idea of Hamilton, you know, exploring the games, you know, they, it certainly piqued their interest so much so that they are wanting to come to Hamilton. The international body is wanting to come to Hamilton at the end of July to explore a preliminary venues plan. And it's certainly no guarantee by any, you know, means, but the fact that, that they're willing 11 years out to look at look at Hamilton is an amazing is an amazing sign very positive sign and and we you know as a result of that have decided to have a a delegation from the Hamilton sport community business community and city at large to actually travel out to London uh, to visit uh, both the Federation at the end of June and the city of Birmingham who's hosting the 2022 games we want to start to develop those relationships uh, early start them now and the fact that the national, the international federation wants to come to Hamilton is an outstanding sign. And apparently, uh, it's unprecedented for the for the you know international body to look at a city this early. Well, and as you say, there's more than sentimentality to this too. But I understand that the, they they do understand that the, you know an anniversary of this. It's just like. Well, we went through this before, and I, I was on that city council way back when, about 15, 16 years ago, so I guess more than that now, sure. uh, where Mayor Bob Wade uh, and, and others uh, were trying to get this thing going. And the competition was tough. I mean, we first of all had to be this, the Canadian choice, and it, that wasn't easy. I think Halifax and I think one other city were in the running as well as us, and of course we, we got the bid. Uh, my understanding, PJ, and maybe you can confirm this, is that for all intents and purposes, if City Council decides to go ahead with this uh, this memorandum today, uh, just about the Canadian Federation has pretty much said, look, it, it's Hamilton's turn. Uh, they don't want any other bids. They're, they're really going to try to put us in the fast lane for this. And even though they can't uh, legally or technically come out and say, you know, state uh, anything around, uh, you know, that, uh, there certainly have been outstanding indications that, that, you know, that it is Hamilton's turn. And we've had a, you know, great working relationship with the CEO of Commonwealth Games Canada, uh, Brian McPherson. Uh, he's been to Hamilton, you know, was before council back in March. And, uh, and he certainly understands the, you know, the historical significance. In addition to the fact that this is a community-led uh, coalition and group that's looking at bringing, you know, bringing, this, uh, bringing the games back to Hamilton, it's, it's not just the private sector. It's, it's you know, not just, you know, our, our colleagues at the city, but the entire sport community. Uh, Sport Hamilton, you know, the Cricket Association, the Aquatic Club, you know, McMaster University is, is very much at the table in a major way. Um, and uh, as well as, you know, various, uh, you know, components of the business community, you know, Ron Foxcroft from Fox 40, you know, Joe Mancinelli at Leuna, the entire hotel and hospitality sector, 
uh, Shendel at the at the Hamilton Club. So we've got a you know really robust community group, and and we've also got a lot of you know people that have been a part of the previous bid. So Cecilia Carter Smith, you know Greg Maychak are you know are at the table, you know helping us and and guiding us and giving us great counsel. Jasper Kajavsky's there providing some good strategic advice. So we've got a really robust and rounded uh, community group, and we've had some great discussions with not-for-profit associations. You know, we've engaged in dialogue with the YMCA about what could this mean for them and for, you know, children and sport in Hamilton uh, long-term. So the fact that it's a, a community, community-led coalition, that is, that is certainly a, very appealing to both uh, Commonwealth Games Canada and the International Federation. If it was just the city or just the sport community uh, looking at this, it wouldn't be as compelling or as strong. But the fact that this is every corner of the city coming together, unified, uh, it's very compelling, Bill. By the way, uh, this is an all-star team that you just talked about here. I mean, they're organizing this. Uh, it's it's interesting that you should mention Greg Maycheck and Cecilia Carter-Smith. Actually, I was talking to both of them about this uh, at the inaugural game of uh, Toronto Forge, uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, I guess now, down at Tim Hortons Field, and they're excited about this. Uh, because they were both involved in that that bid that we just talked about earlier. Uh, Greg actually did an awful lot of the legwork uh, with the International Committee, and so did Cease in situations like this. So they've got that experience, and they can really tap into that because they've already established connections with those bodies. They've got great relationships. They are very well respected in, in you know across the country and in the inter- international community with many of the uh, you know the uh, executives of the Commonwealth Games Federation. And they've got you know the both the playbook and the historic context that is invaluable. And and the the one thing that I you know that I respect about you know both of those individuals specifically is they they have a spirit of of winning and of never giving up. And 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 that is. You know, we are the ambitious city, Bill, um, and, and an ambitious city doesn't give up. And, you know, there is a unique opportunity right before us here with the, the 100th, you know, 100th anniversary. And, and it's, you know, it, it, it's almost the case of, you know, the timing is perfect now. Uh, it was good back with the previous bids, but there's something special about right now. And the fact that the infrastructure, the sport uh, infrastructure in Hamilton needs a you know refurbishment and revitalization. This is why it's the timing couldn't be better. Uh, you know we've been talking about the the arena, talking about the convention center. Uh, you know certainly you know McMaster's been talking about a new pool. Uh, you know there's been t- Sport Hamilton's looking at a new multi uh, sport complex that they want to construct and have as, as a part of their portfolio. So there's a lot of you know the fact that there's a need in the community. For new sport infrastructure um, aligns perfectly with you know the whole spirit and desire of of chasing the Commonwealth Games because you know with the new formula that the federal government has has put forward uh, up to fifty percent of the of the cost of the capital and the games would be covered by the federal government. So unlike previous attempts, Bill, for the Commonwealth Games, you know now the feds are willing to step up to the plate in a major way, which helps the economics and business case of the entire games, um, you know, that much more positively. So, so it's a different, a different, it's a more unique and a better opportunity now to explore the games than it was even 15 years ago. The, our facilities are older and the, the funding pools available from the federal government are that much more robust and that much better. So it, it would be, you know, I believe it would be a cardinal sin not to explore these games and not to explore what this could do for Hamilton uh, it is a tremendous opportunity, and, and, you know, we're wanting council to just let us prepare, let, us, let the Hamilton 100 prepare the business plan in conjunction with the city and, you know, aligned 
with the city and, and the city staff. There's a lot of great, um, you know, uh, resources around the, you know, in, within City Hall that can be of value to, you know, to, you know, the preparing the, the, the information for the, you know, the business plan. And so we just want to have that green light bill. Okay, but here's here's the reality. When you guys go in just a few minutes now, uh, go before city council and start talking about this, and there's a lot of good stuff to talk about here, to be sure. But uh, you know that there's one question that you're going to have to field, and, and I can even probably tell you which council is going to ask it. Uh, they're going to say, how can we afford this? I mean, we've got our own challenges right now. We've got infrastructure problems. This is not a priority for us anymore. How do you? How would you respond to that? Well, the the reality, Bill, is that, and there's there's a couple ways that you could look at it, but you know, the city is going to be spending a lot of money right now um, on just maintenance of, of a lot of these facilities, and that could be avoided. That could be avoided if we look at this Commonwealth Games opportunity and 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 look at aligning with the private sector around this. So, so as part of this exploration, we want to prepare a business plan and and look at okay, if 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 you know the province and the, the federal government. Are you know have historically given this? What does that look like? What is now the, the municipal share? Uh, and if the municipal share is anywhere from 150 to 300 million, you know the first thing is what revenues can be generated from the games that can offset the municipal share. So historically speaking, all of the revenue from the games themselves stays with the host community. So right off the bat, you're going to have the benefit of around 200. To 250 million to, to you know to, you know to you know break off uh, you know that you know local share and then from there you know if we look at the private sector groups that are willing to step up to the table if there is a P3 model that that we could that we could establish you know what private sector partners are willing to step up to the table to help you know help with construction help with operations etc you know I certainly know that Carmen's group would be interested if there is the idea of a new convention center. Um, that could be that could emerge out of this. You know, we would certainly be willing to put some you know real capital on the table. You know, I know that uh, you know, and it certainly will not speak for Mr. Anlauer, but you know, he's obviously gone on record stating that he's interested in you know in, in putting some money forward for a new arena should it align with his vision, uh, etc. And uh, you know, McMaster has spoken about the need to uh, you know to have a new aquatic center and and in previous games bids bill, McMaster. Uh, was willing to put up some significant, uh, significant dollars in, 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 you know, in the tens of millions towards previous Commonwealth Games bids, and certainly not speaking for them either. But you know, they're willing to, you know, to, to be be at the table. Well, the, re- the reality way, so. here is: look at we've had these discussions, and you've been involved in that as well. But as you mentioned, the entertainment facilities, the arena, the the concert hall, and, and the convention center, uh, and what are we going to do with these? Are we going to sell them, or we're going to replace them? And the costs are significant. Uh, and we do know, spoiler alert, the federal government and the provincial government do not fund those sorts of projects anymore. They Back in the 60s and 70s they did, but not anymore. But they do fund those projects if they're for an international games like this. So we could actually get, well, 50 cent dollars, I guess, to do this. It's the same argument that we use about the stadium for the Pan Am games. You want to pay the full freight for it and let the taxpayers pay that? Or do you want the federal government and but the provincial government to kick in a good deal of the money? And that eases the burden on taxpayers. You get the facilities at the end of the game. And it would be more like, Bill, 10 to 20 cent dollars. So, so you know, with the, the, the formula as, it, as it, it's, it's presented right now, um, you know, the municipal share would only be 10 to 20 yeah, I, I wasn't even so counting the private we, sector because we don't know what that's going to be yet, sure. but it will be there. 
Exactly. And so this is where, you know, it's a tremendous opportunity. And so, you know, council, when they look at the question of, you know, can, can we afford this? They won't, at this point, there's no risk to council to explore this. And, and the whole spirit of, of preparing the business plan is to look at, to look at, you know, what private sector opportunities are there for naming rights and for, you know, for, you know, con, you know, helping to, you know, construct the buildings, etc. And, you know, and attached to all that, is what is going to be the long-term legacy of this? Uh, well, you know, obviously having the new infrastructure in place will then put Hamilton in a position to be a sport tourism destination 52 weeks of the year. That's going to fill up the hotels, that's going to fill up the restaurants and create buzz in the community. You know, from there, there's going to be huge social benefits to every aspect and every area of the city, uh, especially, you know, th- there's a focus on youth right now. And then when you look at, you know, things like the Athletes Village and, you know, and, and officials' residences, well, those, those um, you know, buildings could turn into and should turn into affordable housing units. Absolutely, they will. Listen, yeah, I, so I, I know I'm just looking at the clock here. You've got to get in there, so I'm going to let you go. Sure. Uh, <laughs> no uh, fingers problem. crossed. And listen, good luck with the presentation today. We'll certainly be following the, the action down at City Hall, and uh, we'll stay in touch. This could just be the uh, start of something pretty big here. PJ, thanks so much for the time today. No problem. Thanks, Bill. PJ Mercandy, of course, uh, CEO of the Carmen's Group and a member of the Hamilton 100. We'll see how that meeting goes later on today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Over the last couple of months, I guess really years now, we've been telling you about some of the success stories about uh, rejuvenation downtown, especially down around Gore Park. Uh, there are some very fascinating and very exciting projects that are happening, and uh, some of the folks that have invested a lot of money into this community are very much in front and center with this. Uh, one of them, of course, is the old Kresge's building at the corner of Houston and King Street. Uh, then you've got uh, the other building, the Vrancor building that's going on, and we've talked about some of the stuff that's happening on the other side of Gore. But are they legal? Uh, I guess there's a little thing called building permits, I guess, when you're supposed to do these things. And uh, the city apparently has filed an order to comply to obtain uh, some of these permits uh, for both of these builders that we've mentioned so far uh, in these different projects. Is there a pattern going on here? Is is there somebody falling short here? I mean, well, let's get to the bottom of this with the council for that area. Jason Farr, the council for Ward 2 downtown, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Jay, first of all, thanks for the, for the time today. The good news is there's a lot of stuff going on down there. Uh, I guess the question we have to ask ourselves is the city keeping up with it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, the wave continues, incredible momentum, uh, major building projects, and a lot of small projects, too. A lot of what uh, Neil Everson, our former director of economic development, used to call singles, and they add up. But uh, with hundreds and hundreds of uh, building applications, uh, certainly uh, this city is uh, not... Uh, Exclusive. Uh, we, like other cities, uh, have uh, limits as far as our building inspectors go and staffing in the building department. And uh, sometimes we're uh, racing to uh, inspect and, and ensure that uh, projects not only start off well, but inspect uh, during you know, the entire project uh, build. So in, in the cases of uh, both uh, Walnut and Maine, and uh, now more recently as it relates to a shoring permit, not necessarily a foundation permit, um, at uh, the corner of King and Houston with the big uh, Leuna Tower projects. Um, you know, our, our building inspectors uh, doing their work, doing their inspections, uh, needed to issue an order to comply on the latter, so the old Kresge site at King and Houston, and a stop work order a couple of weeks ago at uh, Walnut, Maine. The builders are 
certainly getting ahead of uh, the resources we have as it relates to staffing here in the city, for sure. What's what's the process here? I mean, when, when somebody comes forward with this, and uh, council does all this stuff, goes to planning, I mean, we know about that process of it. But once everything is signed, sealed, and delivered, and council ratifies this and says, okay, let's get going on this, uh, they break ground, there's a big photo op there when they cut the ribbon, and they bring in the, all the, the earth-moving equipment. But is there a series of, of, of things that they have to meet here? I, th- I think a lot of people were under the impression that you just get the permit and bingo, bango, off you go, and they, I will inspect it every now and then, but you've already got our approval. It's not, it seems to me it's a little more intricate than that. Yeah, and we've added to the intricacy, actually, Bill, last year. And in the case of, um, of uh, Leuna, uh, we have a new permit in the um, start of any building phase called the, the shoring permit, or um, um, a per- the permit that actually ensures that buildings in and around that area are going to be safe when we start to dig on these projects. And so that's a relatively new concept. I think it's only four to five months uh, uh, since uh, council adopted it. There's a fee attached and uh, ultimately it ensures that prior to putting your foundation in or pouring the rebar and the cement and all of those things you need to do for these major projects, you're going to shore those that dig and make sure nothing, you know, sort of caves in on that project. So, so with it being a fairly new process, I'd say both sides, uh, there's this adjustment period on how much time it takes, how much uh, work is involved in terms of, uh, you know, the application process. But but in reality, we have an inspection process through the building department, and they're very good at it. Often here, I'm on, I'm on weekends at City Hall, and usually that third floor, that building department has is active. It's almost like it's a Monday or a Wednesday. Uh, so they, they do work overtime, these inspectors and building officials, and uh, try to ensure um, that the things are done in a, in a timely fashion. We, we do have the backload still. I mean, we, we have the, the billion-dollar records we're setting each and every year as it relates to building permits, and they do an ins- exceptional job with a heavy workload and a limited staff in that department. But um, the reality is this happens hundreds of times a year in this city and probably other cities. M- most of the time it's uh, the builder uh, anxious and getting ahead of the process, but but it's 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 not an issue of um, of inspections being faulty. The inspections actually happen. The orders to comply occur, which gives this window. We're not saying stop your work, but we're saying you got to comply by a certain date, and we're going to work together and get this application process done, or you're going to get the ultimate, which is a stop work order until everything gets uh, worked out. Are you getting any pushback from the developers themselves, the builders? Are, are they concerned about this? Because you know in the past, uh, one of the big criticisms from a lot of developers was, look, look, it's just too much red tape at Hamilton City Hall. It's very, very difficult to get anything done. Now, I know that there's been an attempt by council over the last number of years, and you've talked about this on our show many times, mm-hmm. to try to streamline that process. But it seems to me as if it's getting a little more intricate now, as we just uh, talked about, as opposed to more streamlined. Is there a frustration on the part of the builders? You know, some others are very well versed and have great relationships. Uh, the mega builders, the brand cores and uh, the Spalacci's and Leuna for certain with all the wonderful rejuvenation projects that they continue to uh, to do in our in our downtown and in our city. Uh, they, they, they've had established relationships with our fine staff from the planning department, the building department and the engineering department and others over the years. And uh, they know you know, how the process works. I don't think anybody uh, who's investing millions and millions of dollars in a project is going to say that it's a well-oiled machine, but there's fewer, I would suggest, Bill, at least that I hear from, 
that have those concerns with respect to this red tape. We really have addressed it in a very big way, not not 100% fixed, but uh, with our open for business work and our open for business subcommittee over the last couple of terms, I think there's a sentiment, especially among the ones investing the millions, uh, of appreciation for the the process that uh, we're 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 working with them on. Uh, the shoring permit is is interesting, and you mentioned it's a relatively new process. Uh, but I can understand. I just I'm doing just in my mind's eye thinking about the the neighborhoods here, Jay, that you've described. Uh, obviously, there's the construction, there's the demolition of the, whatever existing building was there, and then of course you got to dig the foundation, and, and it's a, but you've got a lot of older buildings, very fragile buildings around that, and I guess obviously there was a concern uh, that uh, that that sort of disruption uh, in, in, with the land there it could actually cause some problems with some of the buildings that are, were not directly involved in the, in the project at all. Yeah, but immediately adjacent. I mean, you just look at the Leuna project. There is to the immediate east a building that was actually attached to Kresge's. And so, you know, it's a really important, especially in this area, when you're talking about a conservation district, a Gore area, uh, to ensure that the, that building that was once attached and for over 100 years to the building that's now been demolished to make way for this wonderful city building project is left intact. And so that's why we came up with the shoring permit. It, it, it's mostly relatable to some of the older areas of our city and directly related to uh, making sure we preserve those adjacent uh, surroundings. Well, and I've seen this happen, and I've heard this discussion with some of those developers. As a matter of fact, Steve Kulikowski from Core Urban uh, was talking about this because they've actually had to do stuff, uh, not on quite as large a scale as what Leuna's doing, of course, but uh, the, the project that they put, of course, together on King William Street in the old Sirloin Cellar, uh, similar situation, uh, a very abutting, as a matter of fact, almost attached to some of these older buildings. And uh, you've got to be pretty careful about that, that you don't cause any further damage. Yeah, and you know, you'd mentioned Steve and, and Dave and Maureen Sauvé, and that was Templar Flats, and now yeah. the Sirloin, the wonderful project they're working right in the very art, King and, and, and James. But they, they, they're also smart enough to realize that if we're the owners of an adjacent project to a major development, we ought to get in touch with that major developer and see if there's some synergies and things we can work on. And I know that Steve and Dave and Maureen have the building right next to uh, the Leuna project right now. Uh, and they're working on a parking partnership. They're working on ways and ways in which that the the two projects that they're they're, they're embarked upon a redevelopment project from Steve, and of course Leuna with a development project that they can work together. And and uh, you know I like seeing that. Uh, it tells me that just when it comes to something as simple as shoring at the very beginning of a major development like like the Kresge uh, project. That you know the neighbors are working together and they're and they're they're ensuring that this is going to be the best project it can possibly be or projects in this case. Well, yeah, because there's space space sensitivities here, isn't there? I mean, mm. so you've got to you know make the best with what you've got there, and that, it's good to know that that's kind of a relationship. And, and the- Bill, there's infrastructure, and another part of the shoring is not so much private adjacent project, but what's underground that's owned publicly and that we ought to be very, very careful of when we're readying a site for a major development. So so, so that's where the shoring permit actually assists too. I haven't heard any uh, complaints from the development community about this added, uh, I don't want to call it red tape, but this new permit process at the beginning of a development. I, I think most very much understand the the importance of it, at least in the downtown. 
But it's it's almost like a, a specialty uh, form that you guys are undertaking right now with these developers because this is a this is a different kind of construction. Uh, this uh, having to work within the confines of, of some older buildings uh, and be creative at the same time, but also build something that's going to last for a long time. I mean, it's a uh, it's a testimony, to, obviously, to some of these developers that are doing this. But boy, it's it's a different kind of construction altogether. So I can understand why you want to make sure that all the eyes are dotted and the T's are crossed on this. Absolutely, and it's so appreciated. And you know, we mentioned Spalachi, we mentioned Leuna, we mentioned Rancor. You know, incredible investments. We're into the hundreds of millions of dollars bill with respect to these downtown projects, and all of them have heritage components within those projects in, in some capacities, much larger, like Spalachi with the Royal Connaught, uh, but Rancor with the 150 main uh, federal building preservation and and adding some glass above. Uh, so so. That tells us, I think, as a community, and Leuna, of course, with what they've done and the Leuna Station and the Thompson Building recently and some other projects that we're working on now in the downtown, there's an appreciation for that heritage. And they're not just appreciating facades. They're appreciating heritage inside, out, and now with the shoring permit, uh, what's below as well. Do you develop a, 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 a protocol and, and a set of standards for for streetscapes and things of this nature? Because uh, you know, we've talked about how important it is, and I think how unique uh, some of the characteristics and the architecture are and some of those existing buildings are. Uh, is there a discussion when somebody like a Rancor or a Leuna comes forward or Core Urban and says, we want to do something like this, that, okay, th- this is the way we'd like to see it look? Does, does that conversation happen? Not with me. <laughs> I can tell you a good design from a bad, and it's probably a good thing that I do not insert myself in that discussion. Yeah, but you don't you don't want to see stuff that's incongruous to what's going no. on down there, and, uh, and and we've seen that in other parts of the city. And I, I I like to think that we're smarter now, and we're going to say, look, at, you know, let's make sure that this not necessarily has to be the same, but at least has to complement what's already there. Oh yeah, so we have plenty of planning uh, policies in place, and of course, Collins and I moved probably six years ago now the design review panel. So this third party group, mostly of architects, other planners from outside the city who review major applications in the downtown and make sure that designs are compatible, that the, that the building itself is compatible with the surroundings. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a new building that looks like a heritage building, but uh, we have these experts on the design review that help inform ultimately the planning committee's decision on whether or not to go ahead with the projects and a lot of what their decisions are based on are our current uh, urban uh, form policy. So we want buildings uh, close to the sidewalk. We want streetscape to be, to be considered trees, uh, accessibility. There's all sorts of things that are part of a design that go beyond just how it looks heights, uh, daylight triangles and road widening and all kinds of things. And this urban design panel has been very helpful to that end. What's, what's, why is this happening? What is happening here? I mean, you know, from, from the time where there wasn't a whole lot of activity going on, it just seems as if every time we turn around now, there's a new project. I mean, we've, we've just talked about some of them right around Gore Park. Uh, we would just have to go a block down the street on James Street there. And, of course, that condo project across from the YMCA is, has been reborn again, and that yeah. looks like it's, get, it's getting legs. It, it seems as if all of a sudden Hamilton's a pretty hot place for developers to want to invest. Oh, Bill, and, and I always appreciate talking to you about it, and I always like hearing your show when you're speaking to people like the mayor earlier this week with the town hall and alluding to all the wonderful things happening downtown. I think you were talking about the open at the time, but the hotel's being full and the 
the, the opportunity for people to come from out of town and maybe haven't been to Hamilton in a long time and are seeing all this. And what I can tell you is we're going to be talking about more of it in the near future. There's some really exciting announcements coming. And uh, I, I'm just glad there's that much support. In fact, I, you know, you heard you with PJ, who was a great Hamilton citizen, and he's got his uh, Hamilton 100 crew filling the rafters here now, and I'm ready to go in and listen to some of the delegates on the, on the potential of the 100th anniversary Commonwealth comeback to Hamilton. And, and that whole crew, I'm looking at them now as I talk to you, there's a whole bunch of great Hamilton boosting going on and investing going on uh, from the local level on a lot of these projects we're talking about. So it's very much appreciated, and certainly the word is out, and I, I don't think we're through with the conversation of the uh, unbelievable momentum that's going on down here. And by the way, just to connect the dots, when I have talked to some of these other developers, and I know you certainly have as well, uh, well, LRT comes into the conversation an awful lot of the time. And I'm not saying it's the only thing that's motivating them to do this, but it's certainly a major factor. Bill, I have not met yet of the hundreds of millions of dollars of investments going on in, in developments in the core, uh, any one developer who is not LRT supportive. I'm not saying there's a few that have quite obviously in the media, on your show, and in the spec and others have said, I, if it weren't for LRT, I wouldn't be building it. Uh, two that I know of, one on James and Maine, and the other that's happening now with the Platinum, ready to start with their foundation permit at the corner of King and Queen. Uh, but but every one of them are very much LRT boosters or LRT supportive. And I haven't met one yet that isn't. Well, and, Hundreds of millions of dollars in development. Yeah, and that's what the old cliche about putting your money where your mouth is right. uh, in situations like this. And, uh, you know, because every time we have these discussions, and there are still some people, obviously, you, some of them are your council colleagues, for that matter, uh, that are still skeptical about LRT and saying, well, where's the investment going to happen? It's already started. I mean, we've just talked about where the, a lot of the investment's already started, and they haven't laid tracks. You haven't even broken ground on the project yet. Exactly. And actually, Councillor Whitehead <laughs> was on record yesterday. You'd have to surf up to the seven-hour or eight-hour mark of our lengthy uh, planning <laughs> meeting. but actually, oh, a did, short one, uh, then, was it? did acquiesce. It did say that yeah, there's definitely LRT-inspired development uh, along the corridor. And, 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 you know, while he may have other arguments for or against LRT, depending on uh, the information he has on the day he has it, uh, there's one area where I got him on record saying, yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a correlation to building an LRT and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in, in development investment. Is there a buzz in the in the in the developing community right now about what's happening here in Hamilton? Oh, I absolutely. I mean, I, I I'm glad I had the opportunity on your program to just say thank you to all the local people investing in, incredibly in the downtown and the city, uh, and many of them in the rafters right now. But uh, more and more, I've taken tours in my own vehicle of folks I've never met before, but they own some parcel in the core, and therefore they are very interested in learning all about that community, the neighborhood groups, uh, what works, what the secondary plan would uh, bill as of right. And uh, certainly our planning department, our economic development department, uh, no shortage of interest. In fact, uh, we talked uh, about a month or two ago about the interest from uh, some Toronto consortium with regarding uh, the Barton Tiffany Film Studio lands. Uh, that conversation is, is, is going very, very well. The MOU, I would expect, is imminent, and, and these folks are are now engaging with the, the community in a greater way. I think the meeting is tomorrow night with our director and some of the community folks nearby. So so there's some exciting stuff happening there as well. Well, and they're uh, from uh, out of town. Are we going to have to have a discussion about more staff in the building department then if this is going to continue? 
Yeah, the worst possible time, but uh, it's not a conversation we can avoid anymore. And cer- certainly uh, Jason Thorne, our general manager of economic development and planning, uh, brought it up at the last budget session. So I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, there are certain things that we need to cover off just with the Bill 108 stuff that's come through from the province. We don't completely understand it yet, but it, it we did have a report, a lengthy one yesterday, a staff presentation that pretty much tells us that is going to be very taxing, extremely onerous, if we maintain the complement that we have now in the planning department, because the changes are enormous. And a lot of it is not only downloaded money to the city bill, but it's the time staff time. It's, it's enormous. And it's even get gets even the smartest budgetary counselors head spinning. Well, uh, let's deal with that today. Let's just deal with what's happening inside the council chambers and you got to get back to a meeting. Thanks so much for this day. I appreciate the time. Bill, as always, thank you. That's uh, Councillor Jason Farr for the uh, Ward 2 downtown area. Uh, catching up with uh, the fascinating building that's going on here, making sure that all the permits and everything else is in place. But uh, pretty exciting times with uh, some of the construction that's going on down there. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about uh, climate change and let's talk about how governments are dealing with that. Uh, of course, we already know that uh, Donald Trump had a meeting off. Uh, impromptu conversation, I guess, with Prince Charles yesterday over in London, uh, and was bragging about the fact that uh, the Americans have the cleanest environment anywhere, the cleanest water, the cleanest air. Uh, Not so sure where he got that point of reference, but anyway, be that as it might. Uh, We're having that debate here in Canada as well, and it has to do essentially with the carbon tax that uh, the federal government uh, moved on some time ago. Uh, unless, of course, those provinces had a another plan that was going to be as effective or maybe even more effective. Well, Ontario, of course, and uh, Saskatchewan and other provinces are battling the carbon tax. Uh, Doug Ford has already committed about $30 million uh, to fight this in court um, and advertise his side of this. A lot of money. You've heard the ads on this radio station and many others talking about the Ford plan as the alternative and the better way to do these sorts of things. Well, there's a report being issued today from the Canadians for Clean Prosperity, which is a, an environmental think tank made up of uh, business people that think you can combine business success with environmental concerns. But anyway, uh, this report has uh, actually done an analysis of the Ford plan, and amazingly enough, uh, they have decided and told us, and they've got facts to back this up here, that Ford's Ontario plan for the, uh, for the environment, his climate plan, would cost you and me, the taxpayers and consumers of this province, twice as much, two times as much, as the carbon tax the federal government's already initiated. Joining us to talk about this is Richard Brennan, longtime uh, journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill low these many years. Uh, Badger, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hey, Bill. Uh, I know this is probably the first time in your long and illustrious career that you've actually seen a report that contradicts a government policy. Well, this is going to be, this is not going to serve the, uh, the not only Ontario, but, you know, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, uh, Alberta, and New Brunswick, because they're taking a similar tact. You know, this organization is saying, hold on a minute, this plan that you've proffered is is going to cost twice as much. And it says the reason it will be, because you're cherry-picking um groups that you'll apply this tax to, this carbon tax, rather than right across the board. And doing across the board, this they argue, this organization argues, that is, is more fair and in the end of the day will cost less money to consumers. 
And but it, once again, this isn't the environment is the issue, but it's not what these four or what these five provinces. Are, the real issue is they want to unseat the liberals, and they're dedicated to a different plan. And whether it's sought out or not, who, who knows? But they're dedicated to a different plan than the, than the uh, liberal plan. And to me, it comes as no surprise because they want they want the liberals out of there, and they'll do everything in their power to do it. And this is just another vehicle. Well, which begs the question then, uh, and let's talk about the Ontario example. Uh, when Doug Ford was elected last June, um, and that was one of the things he did campaign on, and one of the first things he did, of course, after he won the election, was to scrap the cap-and-trade program, which was already in place here in Ontario. Uh, and, and by the way, by doing that, as we now know, that also kicked us into the potential for being part of the carbon tax, because the federal plan was, if you don't have your own plan, you're going to be under our plan, and that's exactly what has happened here. But did he scrap that plan because it was a bad plan, or did he scrap it just because it was a liberal plan? Just because it was a liberal plan. Because I, I, there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever. Uh, and he, he scrapped a plan that made money for us and has introduced uh, this this patchwork, if you will, plan that will actually, actually, according to this report, will cost us more money. So it's all about going after the liberals, and they'll... In, they'll use whatever vehicle they can. This is just one, and, uh, and at the end of the day, if you believe this report, and it seems to has some credibility, it's going to cost us more money than the the vaunted, the so-called vaunted uh, plan that the the Ontario government has put together. You know, the ones in the ad showing you know money coming out the end of a gas uh, gas pump hose. You know, coming in money coming out to the the event of a person's home, and and you know and of course we can't forget that they never ever mention in those ads that there will be a rebate under the liberal or under the liberal federal plan for consumers. Well, it's already now, started. The rebates program has already started. Anybody that filed their taxes this year saw that. Yeah, exactly. And, and and again, it's it's a matter of speaking in half-truths, which is not the first time that's happened in politics. I mean, we we understand that that gets happening all the time. Uh, and and I, listen, we can't get too deeply into this because, I mean, you start talking about carbon uh, and about greenhouse gas emissions and uh, tonnage, of, of, of et cetera, et cetera. And it's, a lot of the stuff is just going to make people's eyes glaze over. But the takeaway here is the one that you've just mentioned uh, about doubling the cost. Uh, it's... Uh, what are they looking at? I'm looking at the line here. It says uh, uh, for Hamilton or Ontario businesses and households in 2022, uh, it's going to cost 59% more if we use Doug Ford's plan as opposed to uh, the federal carbon tax plan. Uh, that figure would fall to 50% by about 2030, uh, simply because of market adjustments. But they mentioned something that, that you have talked about in the past, and it seems such a common sense uh, conclusion. And they is that look at if he goes after the heavy polluters as, as he's promised to do. Those polluters are simply going to pass that cost on to you and me as consumers. Of course they are. And, I mean, and you're right, there's no rebate there. As a matter of no. fact, this report says that the price of gasoline, the price of home heating foil, foil is going to skyrocket under Ford's plan. It's, it's unfortunate. I mean, the, I know that they didn't 
the trouble is they came out of the shoot gangbusters when they got elected. And they made decisions on the fly. And every one of your listeners know when you make decisions on the fly, you often regret it and most times regret it because you haven't given it much thought. And I, I think that falls under this. They, they just they said, well, the, the liberal plan, the Ontario liberal plan is bad, 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 and the one we're going to come up with is good, and everybody's going to benefit, but not according to this report, not everyone's going to benefit, that's for sure. Well, and therein lies the problem, which I guess raises the question, which way are we going to go on this? Uh, you know, I mean, he's as we mentioned off the top, he's already challenging this in court, and he's already set aside a fair bit of money for this. Uh, the Saskatchewan already got their wrist slapped. I mean, they're going to take this to the Supreme Court. It's obviously going to go to the top court. And it's oh, going to absolutely. Happen. That's where it's headed yeah. for every last one of them. It's And no matter what happens, though, uh, it's going to cost us an awful lot of money. But what we were looking for here is some sort of a business case from the, from the Ford government about how their plan was going to be better. Uh, and, and by the way, I mean, I've already received it because I wrote about this on my blog today, and it was my commentary at A10 this morning. And I've also, as I expected, all kinds of feedback. Ah, it's just propaganda. These these are not tree huggers. This this organization, uh, Canadians for Clean Prosperity, these are these are business people. These are CEOs of, of very successful companies that also understand that there has to be some environmental concerns and, and acknowledgments. Uh, you can be a, a successful businessman, but you don't have to you know start plowing trees under and things of this nature. So, uh, you know, to su- just dismiss them as a bunch of left wing whack jobs, which a lot of people tend to do, would be a huge mistake because that's not the situation at all. And it's the second organization, Badger, that's done this. Remember the report that came out late last year uh, from a think tank that was actually run by Stephen Harper's uh, old advisor. Um, And, you know, Preston Manning is on side with carbon taxing. He doesn't like the way that Trudeau does it, but he likes the concept of it. And here's a fun fact I know you're aware of. Uh, You know, for people, who, where was the first carbon tax in Canada? It was in Alberta in 207, and it was by the conservative government. Yep. It, it, this is not a left-wing program. This is a conservative program that these conservatives all of a sudden think is no good. But this is a different conservative. What we're looking at is not the conservatives in you know, 2007 in Alberta. This is an entirely different bunch. And they, it's, it's far more right than they existed in 2007. And they right in many ways, right in politics, and they figure they're right on just about anything they do. And, you know, every government has that that tact, of course. But they, they have to understand that the environment has to be protected. And I know there's people out there that say, oh, climate change doesn't exist and that. Well, they are like the anti-vaxxers, you know. I, I don't give them much thought, quite frankly. The government, the governments, or the federal governments or provincial governments have to work together to come up with a plan to reduce emissions. And it should be, they should be working together to come up with the best plan instead of this patchwork that now exists, good, bad, and indifferent. And, and this report says that uh, the one Ontario is uh, proffering is, is, is certainly not not adequate, according to them. That's what I find the most troubling part of this, is that we have the trains coming down the tracks. We've only, we've, you know, we've seen what climate change is already doing, 
and we're still just playing on the tracks. And, and someday, I hope somebody comes to their senses and says, you know, we can no longer just, you know, go at each other with, you know, hammer and tong and actually work together. But God knows that that's going to happen. There's a couple of other things in here, too. And, and by the way, your point's well taken. I mean, yes, obviously the mandate of the Ford government was to defeat liberals, and Jason Kenney wants to do the same thing. And we get, that's, But that's always been there. But that doesn't mean that you have to be you know, ham-fisted about this and, and, and less than honest about exactly what your plan's going to do and how it's going to impact uh, the taxpayers. I mean, one of the other things that Ford talked about uh, that didn't get a whole lot of coverage, but this report does address it, was well, he wants to raise the ethanol levels in gasoline up to 15%. Well, the experts say that that's actually going to make the gasoline less effective, which means it's going to burn faster, which means we'll have to use more gas, which is going to increase greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, I mean, clearly they're not thinking this thing through. And hurt the oil industry. Yeah. yeah. I don't get that one. I mean, I'm no expert, you know, no mechanic. My dad was, and I certainly didn't get that, that gene. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, ethanol is, is okay to a certain level as an additive. But you get too high, and a lot of the cars just aren't equipped to burn it at that kind of level. And again, you know, more emissions, you know, a, Less mileage, which is increasing emission, as you said. I mean, this 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 not, this report cites and and uh, just looking up here, uh, this report cites is, uh, another finding is from another group that says you have to remember eighty percent of the oil related emissions come from transportation, and the Ontario plan deals doesn't deal with that at all. That well, I can see. Well, if increasing ethanol levels is there, that's actually going to make that bad situation even worse. Exactly. And they're, they're not addressing that at all, as you mentioned, uh, which is the major source of this. At least other governments have made a shot at this by trying to encourage us to move towards electric cars and, or hybrids or whatever the case might be. Uh, and, of course, he scrapped those programs, so that's not going to happen either. Now, the federal government had to step in and introduce their own plan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which which made it a little more affordable too, by the way, because they put a ceiling on this. I think it's cars under fifty thousand dollars, as opposed That's to, uh, which makes a little more sense, I guess, than the, the, what the wind government had done. And and this is not to beat the drum for any any political party or gun. It's just a matter of can we think this thing through and do what, what what's right here instead of being blinded by political ideology, which seems well, to be the motivating factor here. Well, that's the point. Let's. Can't we get beyond this divide of you know left and right and finally work together to get some solutions because things are changing. We only have to look at the lake levels in Ontario now at the highest they were ever. The flooding that happened, the flooding that happened in Ottawa and in several parts of Ontario and, and the U.S., and now the forest fires. If, if people don't see what's happening, then they're not, they're not looking you know they they they're so concerned about you know the price of gasoline and and you know how how any effort to to protect the environment might might affect them personally they've got to think about they've got to think of you know about a, a bigger world than they are right now and i i know people you know we all like to protect our own but if you want to protect your own that's you know your generations to come 
and it's got to happen, and it's got to start to happen now. And believe me, I'm not an environmentalist by any stretch of the imagination, but the point is that we all got to start to be environmentalists, and we got to be more environmentally conscious. Richard Brennan, as always, uh, Badger, thanks so much for the time. We'll see how the government reacts, although I have my suspicions of what's, what's going to be sun here, but we'll, we'll carry on at that point anyway. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for this. Okay, thanks, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.